last 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a purpose. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano here with you, as always, joined via Zoom by Brendan Mortensen on this Thursday afternoon in what has been the longest week of all of our lives, and it is just Thursday. Brendan, thanks so much for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, some Orioles topics in just a bit, the... Uh, Yomer Sanchez waiver claim. We're going to talk about Jose Iglesias, of course, returning to the Orioles as the, they picked up his option, kind of predict what the infield will look like in 2021. And then I'm going to talk to Steve Klauke about Isaac Matson, a prospect that entered the Orioles system about a year ago in the Dylan Bundy trade from the Angels organization. But first, Brendan, got to talk about everything that happened Tuesday night. Uh, you know, crazy... Uh, announcements being made, uh, live broadcast, uh, everybody tuning in. Of course, I'm talking about the Gold Glove Awards. Yes, that was the biggest event happening on Tuesday night. Um, shout out to Major League Baseball for scheduling that perfectly on a night where they had the entire baseball world's full attention and they were not focused anywhere else. I could not think of a better night to schedule the announcement of the Gold Glove Awards. Uh, I know, just couldn't. I was preparing to come on this podcast and just rip the schedule makers who put this on the schedule for Tuesday election night. But I was, as I was driving in, I was listening to uh, Sirius XM MLB radio and Mike Farron said that, uh, and who knows, he, he could be very well wrong, but he said that they, the uh, viewing audience for the gold gloves this year was higher than it was last year. How is that possible? Seriously? Who was tuning in? I'm sorry. I know Anthony Santander, of course, was up for a gold glove. He was a finalist in right field, and I turned in to watch that. But who was tuning into ESPN when the results were being announced to see the gold glove awards? I'm sorry. Now, my question is, is that a reflection of people still watching the gold glove awards this year? Or is it a reflection of the fact that nobody watched them ever? <laughs> Yeah, the the bar might not that, have been that's my question. very high. It it kind of reminds me of like have you ever, you know, tried to schedule something and you like if you're trying to to schedule like a doctor's appointment and you're like, "Oh, I mean, uh you got 9 a.m. on on uh, December 25th. That looks great. I I can't see anything wrong with that. It, it well, there's a wide open time. I don't know why it would be wide open because it's Christmas day. Like there is it you blow it by realize like there's a reason that that time slot was open for ESPN and they gave them that time slot and the person who was checking the calendar for MLB was like yeah Tuesday middle of the week tonight in November don't see anything wrong without without even realizing what was going on there wasn't one person who went now wait a minute <laughs> not one yeah no and it's like they they also build election night into your Google Cal so yeah it and it's pretty it's sure very it's, hard to forget about it it kind of is it's almost like it happens every four years and we're yeah. just kind of waiting for it um but anthony santander of course coming up short for the gold glove in right field in the american league but an honor to be nominated especially considering he played 37 games and i know right field is not a defensively premier position but for santander who honestly a couple years ago was not a very good defender at all to be nominated to be a finalist for a Gold Glove Award, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Anthony Santander's bat. That was usually the thing all year that was getting him most of the attention. But to even be nominated for the Gold Glove is really big for Anthony Santander. I mean, Joey Gallo, the winner, was very deserving. He's one of the better defensive right fielders in all of Major League Baseball and, of course, the American League. But uh, for Santander, it's just a really good sign that both areas of his game are really improving. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's switch to the other Orioles news of the week. Two moves in the Orioles infield that were made in the past week. Uh, let's start with the first move that was made. I think it was chronologically the first move. It was the more important move regardless, and that was Jose Iglesias on Sunday afternoon getting his $3.5 million option picked up by the Baltimore Orioles. 
Brendan, what was your first reaction considering this happened on the very last day that the Orioles just could pick up his option and they did? Well, I was a little skeptical that they would pick up his option because they waited so long to do it. But once they did, I really wasn't surprised. I think Jose Iglesias just played too well last year to not bring back on a contract. I was on the podcast a few weeks ago fanboying over the idea of bringing in like an Angelton Simmons or something like that. But I think when you have Jose Iglesias already on the roster, he's already established himself with the Orioles within the lineup, within the clubhouse. He was just too good of a player last year not to bring back. I mean, Michael Elias said that it was pretty much a no-brainer. He could have been an MVP candidate last year, Elias's words, if yeah. he had played the entire season. So, you know, while I don't think Iglesias is going to put up MVP numbers next season, and I don't think he's going to find himself in the three-hole very often, he's still a really solid shortstop for the O's. And while he may not be the long-term solution at that position, he's certainly a good temporary fit there both defensively and offensively. His bat exploded last year, the best of his career. So it really wasn't a a question of whether or not they should bring Jose Iglesias back. It was just whether or not they would, and they ended up doing it, and I think it's a good move. Yeah, and Michael Elias kind of played down the idea that it was, you said he said it was a no-brainer. It was not a difficult decision. Uh, And he, the reason he gave for waiting as long as they did to pick up the option was that, you know, it's always just good to use the time afforded to you. Uh, And, you know, if you can use those four days or three days after the World Series ends to try to gather all the information that you have and wait as long as you can to make the decision and take as much time to think it over, why not do it? But I do understand why it created some apprehension because there were options being declined all around baseball, and we've talked about it on this podcast. This offseason is going to be the most confusing, uh, unknowable offseason that we've seen in a long time because we just don't know where these teams stand financially. Uh, with no fans in the stands for the regular season, uh, you know, with a shortened season, it's difficult to know, and, and the team's financial situations are not public knowledge. And another thing that, you know, it's, it's a capless league. So it's not like we know exactly what the cap is and teams can spend up to that amount. Teams can spend as much or as little as they want during this offseason. And while Jose Iglesias, on paper, it made absolute sense, total bargain to bring him back at $3.5 million, you just don't know how much money the Orioles have on hand and how much and where they want to allocate those funds. Uh, because on the baseball side, I think it made absolute perfect sense. It was just, you know, we don't know. We don't know how much they have on hand, and we don't know how willing they are to spend this this free agency. I, I think this is probably going to be at $3.5 million, the most expensive deal that they make this offseason. Probably the most expensive deal, but like you said, he's still a bargain at $3.5 yeah. million. Shortstop is a premier position you will have a very hard time finding somebody in free agency that is going to give you as much value as Jose Iglesias does at the shortstop position for less than $3.5 million. I would argue that you probably can't at all. I think it's nearly impossible. We were talking about a guy like Andrelton Simmons. He was going to cost you a lot more than $3.5 million a year. He was probably going to be up somewhere near $8, $9 million a year if he's going to sign somewhere in the offseason. So I think for the Orioles where you're looking at that value of guys that could potentially be in the free agent market, Iglesias and his value contract-wise is just better than any of those guys. Yeah, and with all these teams uncertain, this kind of leads into our next topic, all these teams being uncertain about where they are going to spend their money and and how much they are willing to spend, that contract, that $3.5 million for Jose Iglesias, not only makes him affordable for the Orioles, but makes him very affordable for other teams that might be willing to trade for him, whether it comes later this offseason or early next season or right at the trade deadline next year. Because if if teams are really this scared of spending money, this free agency, you have Jose Iglesias making 3.5, and then you have a number of guys on this team that are right in the middle of their arbitration years that are not making much money at all uh, that make them probably more attractive trade options because teams don't want to spend in free agency they may be willing to give up a lower-level prospect or uh, a couple international signings as opposed to spend going out and spending $10 million on a guy who's going to be a stopgap for a year or two. Yeah, and I think a lot of the players for the Orioles that are arbitration-eligible 
are valuable trade pieces, at yeah. least in in some way. I think there's probably only one or two guys on that list that I look at and say, I don't know if the Orioles will be able to trade them to to a contending team at the deadline, but pretty much everybody else is going to offer some kind of value to a team at the deadline if they want to get dealt at some point this season. Yeah, I mean, let's let's get into that now because we, we're going to talk about Yomar Sanchez in a second, and he is arbitration eligible, but the Orioles currently, as it stands, have eight arbitration eligible players on their roster. Hanser Alberto, Renato Nunez, Yomar Sanchez, Trey Mancini, Anthony Santander, Pedro Severino, Sean Armstrong, and Pat Vileka. So those are eight guys that they have on their roster that are arbitration eligible. And it's impossible right now, especially with the 60-game season, it's impossible to know exactly how much these guys are going to make in arbitration. Um, but MLBTradeRumors.com does a pretty good job of trying to estimate, given their previous numbers and their history, of how much these guys are going to make. And all of these guys, of course, because they are arbitration eligible, are eligible to be non-tendered in a couple weeks when that deadline comes up in the first week of December. So the Orioles might be trying these next three or four weeks might be a good time for the Orioles to try to decide if they want to trade these guys. And actually they may make a move or two before they get into the winter meetings territory in the middle of December with one of the guys that is arbitration eligible. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the list and I think right now the only one that I think will probably be non-tendered if the Orioles can't find a deal for him is Pat Vileka. Yeah. I think, you know, 1.1 1. 1 million right now for, yeah. for Pat Vileka is the predicted value, which it seems like a, that, that, that's a little, probably a little too rich considering, especially the Orioles bring back Stevie Wilkerson, who we said fills somewhat of a similar role. We saw Ramona Urias last year as a valuable utility infielder. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that might be a little too rich for their blood. Yeah, and I think Sean Armstrong, A, presents you with good value. He's teetering that line a little bit of a possible non-tender, but given the season that he had last year, I think at the very least he could garner some trade consideration, even if the Orioles can't make a move for him. But pretty much everybody else on the list, Yolmer Sanchez, the Orioles just brought in, Alberto, Nunez, Mancini, Santander, and Severino, those are all guys that you can either keep on the roster for their arbitration money or try to make a deal for because I think all of them have enough value that they would garner interest from other teams. Yeah, I mean, so it, it, the most amount that is projected is, of course, Trey Mancini, who's projected. I think he's going into his second year of arbitration eligibility. So he is projected at this point to make $4.8 million. He's obviously not going anywhere. So you have that locked up. Then, then there's kind of the middle territory where you have Hanser Alberto, who, who is projected at this point to make $2.3 million. You have Renato Nunez, who's projected to make $2.1 million. We've talked quite a lot about Renato Nunez being a potential uh, trade chip for Michael Elias. Um, and then below that, Anthony Santander, $1.7 million. We've talked about him potentially as a trade chip, but we think he's most likely to stay. Those first two guys, Alberto and Nunez, do you think because of this uncertainty this offseason with teams that the Orioles might try to to trade uh Hanser Alberto and Renato Nunez one of the two I think at least one of them will get dealt um we, we've talked about on the podcast like you said a lot about Renato Nunez and how he might kind of be the odd man out yeah. in this Orioles lineup I think of those two there's a pretty good chance that Nunez gets dealt before Alberto I think Orioles fans know that a lot of the value of Hanser Alberto doesn't necessarily come on the field because he's such an important part of the team in that clubhouse. He's a he's a big team leader, and I would honestly be surprised if the Orioles tried to move him because although he doesn't offer you the most value offensively, defensively on the field of on the of the guys on this list, I think he gives you so much value off the field that he would be a tough guy to trade in that regard. So I think Renato Nunez is probably the name that I'm looking at the most and saying, okay, the Orioles might try to move him with that arbitration value. I think that 2.1 million number, if you can't find a trade home for Renato Nunez, that's not an outlandish number. I think you can keep him on the roster for that, but ideally because he's probably not going to get a ton of playing time with Mancini, Mountcastle and the crowded outfield, like we talked about, I think ideally you'd probably like to trade him. I Yeah, I, I do think they probably prefer to trade him at this point. I wouldn't rule out non-tendering, though. If if there is not a, a, a trade partner out there 
would they bring back? I, I we just don't know how much they money they have and how willing they are to spend it at this point. So I think in a normal offseason, absolutely, you would bring him back at two point one million. But especially considering he might not have a spot on the diamond next year or the DH spot, I think they might non-tender potentially Renato Nunez. I think they're they're really hoping that they can trade him. Yeah, the non-tender for me with Nunez is just tough because he's too good of a player to non-tender, in my Pro- opinion. Probably, you- yeah. But he's, I think he teeters on the edge. He's just not... If, if he were a more consistent player, if they had a definite spot for him next year, and it's difficult because you look at, you know, a guy like Rio Ruiz, who is not arbitration eligible. He is a better defensive player, obviously, but a not a very... You know, doesn't bring nearly... A, what Renato Nunez does offensively, he's probably like much likelier to be on the roster next year, not just because he has a spot in the infield, but also because he has he, he's going to be much cheaper. Yes, but let's let's not forget too that Renato Nunez offensively, he's two years removed from thirty-one homers and ninety RBIs. Yeah. That's still a valuable bat in anybody's lineup, I would think. And while he is very streaky, we know Nunez can you know hit 200 for a week and then hit 400 the next. And he's, he's going to hit somewhere in the mid 200s. Probably he'll hit somewhere around 240, 250. But I just have a hard time looking at 31 homers, 90 RBIs and thinking that that doesn't have a place on the Orioles roster and doesn't hold some value in a trade. Yeah. I, I, I think, like I said, I think they're hoping to trade him, but I, I think another candidate too to be non-tendered, I think Pedro Severino is a low-key candidate to be non-tendered. Um, I really don't know what kind of trade value he had. He has, considering the second half of the season that he had, um, and he finished hitting about two sixty-seven. Um, a little bit of pop, not a good defensive catcher at this point. And you and I both like Pedro Severino, but one point four million dollars. Would you keep him on the roster next year, considering you might be seeing? Uh, Adley Rutschman make his major league debut in 2021. You already have Chance Cisco. Would he, is he an odd man out in this situation? Personally, if I'm Mike Elias, I'm not. And right now, obviously, I'm not making the money decisions. But I would keep Pedro Severino for 1.4 million. I know that the Orioles might be looking to save some money someplace, and I think Severino is a possible candidate for that because, like you said, Adley Rutschman could be making his debut this season and you have chance Cisco who I think is probably more valuable at this point than Severino. My thinking with Pedro Severino is that maybe you keep him on the roster for 2021, assuming that Adley isn't going to make his debut until the second half of next season. Yeah. Maybe Severino has a first half similar to like he did in 2020 plays lights out in the first half and you get to the trade deadline and he has some value for a team that really needs either a catcher or a backup catcher. And you can hope at that point that Severino will just be almost a rental for the Orioles yeah. because you can have him for the first half of the 2021 season, hope that his trade value moves up or increases in some way, and then deal him to a team at the deadline in, at which point, hopefully Adley Rutschman will be able to make his debut relatively soon after that deadline and then you can run another two-catcher rotation of Adley Rutschman and Chance Sisko backing him up. So personally, I would take the gamble and say, okay, for $1.4 million, we'll see if Severino can increase his value enough in the first half of 2021 to find a trade partner. But if the Orioles are looking to save money, it would not surprise me if yeah. Severino is non-tendered because they have Chance Sisko, and I think – Severino as a backup catcher at that point doesn't offer you a ton of value where you could get a cheaper backup catcher, even if it is an Austin wins who hasn't played great at the major league level. Somebody like that who isn't going to cost you one and a half million dollars. And Brian holiday too, as well as a guy that they currently have on their roster, a veteran guy who I guess at this point probably brings a little bit slightly better uh, defense defensively behind the plate. But Severino's 27. I think holidays like 32 or 33. So, you know, during this rebuild, we've said it a million times, you tend to lean towards youth, but if youth is going to cost you that much more money, you just might not do that this offseason. All right, let's talk about Yolmer Sanchez because he was a, he is an arbitration-eligible player, but he was placed on waivers by the Chicago White Sox. He's 28 years old, and the Orioles picked him up. He's played all over the diamond 
For the most part, he has played at second base, but he can play third. And Mike Elias said in his press conference earlier this week that they believe that he can play some shortstop if needed. I think Iglesias most likely is slotted in at shortstop. Do you think the addition, what do you think the addition of Yolmer Sanchez means for this infield? Well, first of all, I think it means that Pat Vileka has probably seen his last days yeah. as an Oriole. I can't imagine that the Orioles pick him up uh, with that arbitration we talked about. Over a million dollars for Pat Vileka when you just picked up Yolmer Sanchez, who is probably giving you more value. I think it doesn't really make sense to bring back Vileka at that point. Michael Elias mentioned, like you said, that he could play second base and third base. I think that's probably where we see the most of Yolmer Sanchez. You can probably rotate him. I think the, the three-man rotation w- between second base and third base will be some combination of Sanchez, Rio Ruiz, and Hanser Alberto. I wouldn't be surprised if Sanchez is the opening day third baseman. I think he probably gives you similar, if not more, value than Rio Ruiz. They're different offensively. Sanchez is going to hit for a better average. He hit 313, granted in just 16 at-bats in 2020. But he's a few years removed from leading the American League in triples in 2018 with 10. So he has a good contact bat. He's probably going to hit somewhere in the mid-250s, 5 to 10 home runs, and he's going to give you solid defense. I think if you're Brandon Hyde, you could look at Sanchez and say maybe he gives you more value than Rio Ruiz at third base. And if you know you could rotate Hanser Alberto to second and third, you could rotate Sanchez and Rio Ruiz at third base as well. So I think he's going to find his playing time. Personally, I would start him more at third and keep Alberto at second, but you can really move him anywhere. And I think that's where a lot of his value comes from. And I think it's a really good pickup for the Orioles, especially if you're not planning on bringing back Pat Vileka. Yeah, I think he fits uh, the the same type mold as Jose Iglesias in terms of a typically a, a defense first guy. You mentioned the gold glove um, that he had, and, and he's not probably not quite the defender that Jose Iglesias is at shortstop um, because he, he doesn't play that position, and he also doesn't, uh, he's probably not up to that caliber defensively, but um, the sim, a similar type mold. And we saw the year that they got out of Jose Iglesias. They're probably hoping that they can do something similar there. But Michael I said, look, it's early in the offseason. A lot of times they make these waiver claims. We saw what happened last year to Carson Fulmer. And he spent a week on the team and made like two appearances. And then eventually they placed him on waivers again. So the, the roster at this point, the four, they have the 40-man roster that they have to play with. They added him. Um, and right now they have five open spots. So they can kind of, you know, if they need to bring somebody up, if they need to add another prospect, if a Cody Sedlock to their 40-man roster when they're already going to add Diaz and Lowther and Wells and those guys, they might. It, this might be one of those pickups that Sanchez is with them for like a week, and then they're like, all right, thanks so much. Sorry you didn't get to be with us very long, but we have to put you back on waivers. Yeah, realistically, I think I could also see Sanchez and Richie Martin kind of being the two utility infielders. They'll kind of be the rotational guys behind Alberto Iglesias Ruiz if those end up being your three starters at the non-first base infield positions. So I think having two of those guys would be valuable. We saw it this year with Pat Vileka and Andrew Velasquez, and I think you're kind of upgrading at both of those spots with Richie Martin and Yolmer Sanchez. If you had to predict right now, opening day infield for the Baltimore Orioles, what would your infield look like? So first base, I it's kind of a toss-up for me personally. You can put Ryan Mountcastle there. You can put Trey Mancini there. Yeah. I think yeah, on opening day, no matter who is playing first base, it's going to be some combination of Mountcastle and Mancini at first base and DH. So you can throw those two on there. I'll say Mountcastle for now. Second base, I'm going to say Hanser Alberto. Shortstop, Jose Iglesias. And third base, I'm going to say Yolmer Sanchez. I think personally, he gives you more value than Rio Ruiz. Maybe they want to start Ruiz there, see if he can kind of pick up on those hot streaks that he had last season and continue those over a more consistent stretch in 2021. But I think Sanchez gives you a little bit more value at this point. So if I'm constructing the opening day lineup for the O's, I'm putting Sanchez at third base and hoping that Ruiz can be maybe a spark bat off the bench. And if Ruiz can put together some consistent at-bats, 
then sure, start him at third base and move Sanchez back into that rotational infield spot. But as it stands right now, I would start Sanchez at third base. We don't know how big the rosters are going to be next year. But in that scenario, you have Rio Ruiz on the bench. Would you rather keep, just academically, Rio Ruiz or Richie Martin at the big league level? Or would you rather try to option one of those guys down to the Norfolk level? I think at this point, I would probably keep Rio Ruiz at the major league level because he, Richie Martin, two years ago, didn't really like what we saw from him at all. He really didn't have too many stretches where he looked great. Rio Ruiz had some stretches last season where he looked really good. Yeah. He looked like he could be the Orioles' everyday third baseman. And if you can get those consistent stretches out of Rio Ruiz, then he could be a pretty solid option at third base for you. Whereas Richie Martin, I think, just needs some more work all around. We really didn't see those flashes from Richie Martin at any point two years ago. So if I had to choose one of the two, I would say Rio Ruiz. If we're throwing Ryland Bannon in there, I think I would rather have Ryland Bannon at the Major League level at some point next season well, over a Richie Martin and over a Rio Ruiz. But you're getting ahead of us. You're getting ahead. Yes. Because we're going to look at, <laughs> we're, I want to ask next what you think the final. Orioles infield will be what the Orioles infield will be on the last day of the regular season so to speak um, but that's interesting I mean I think Richie Martin just is the on the wrong end of, of having this injury and if this were a full season he probably would have missed a lot of time and then made his return because he would have been out what six to eight weeks with that broken wrist so he ended up missing the time um, and missing the entire season. So we didn't get to see if he made those improvements that we talked about last offseason that he needed to make offensively. I mean, he only hit about 220 back in 2019, but we had heard pretty much good things about him returning uh, in 2020, making some changes at the plate. Maybe they weren't going to have him start every day, and that takes some pressure off him at shortstop. Um, but it stinks for Richie Martin because we just don't get to see that. And Rio Ruiz didn't exactly take advantage of the opportunity that was given to him you know we saw those flashes especially at the beginning of the season but by the end of the season his production had really kind of fallen off a cliff from where it it had started I think it's it's going to come down if if those two guys are kind of battling for a spot it could kind of come down to spring training and what Brandon Hyde and the coaching staff and Mike Elias see from those two guys in spring training and they may have to try to send a guy down yeah, and I don't want to anoint Sanchez as a Jose right. Iglesias type right now. I think there's probably a strong possibility that if we're talking about kind of a, a spring training battle between Rio Ruiz and Richie Martin, that Sanchez is probably part of that battle as well. This yeah. isn't a, a big-name free agent that they brought in. It's not even a Jose Iglesias-type free agent that we brought in. This is a guy who was waived from the White Sox a few weeks ago. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a player who is going to be the caliber of Jose Iglesias for the Orioles. I just think that he offers a better value than Rio Ruiz at this point, but not not so far as to say that he is guaranteed even a roster spot, let alone an opening day starting position somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And if I had to predict my infield, and again, we don't know what the health of Trey Mancini is. We're hoping that he is ready to go 100% by opening day 2021. Um, but of course, it's, it's tough to bounce back from from chemotherapy treatments that he has been undergoing for the last eight or so months. So we're hoping that he is going to be able to play every day, but just not certain at this point. So let's just, for the academically, slot Trey Mancini into first base. We can put Ryan Mountcastle in left. I think Hanser Alberto is at second, and I don't even, I don't feel great about that. I do think with that $2.3 million projected that he's going to get an arbitration, I think he could not potentially be on this team next year, whether it's a trade or... Uh, unfortunately, uh, might have to be a non-tender, but I think it, it would probably much more likely be a trade than a non-tender at this point. But I think you have to slot him in there for right now, and then Jose Iglesias probably at shortstop, and yeah, I'm with you. Probably Yolmer Sanchez at third at this point, but it's it's totally wide open. I think this this entire infield could look vastly different than what it looked like at the end of 2020 and what even we're predicting at this point. Yeah, not only could it look vastly different, I think it could also look vastly different at the end of 2021. Yeah. I think in the second half of the season, there's a possibility that that Orioles starting infield includes maybe a Taron Vavra, maybe includes a Ryland Bannon. I think there's a possibility 
that both of those guys could be starting for the Orioles at those infield spots by the end of the year. I think that's entirely possible. If Hans Alberto ends up being a guy that you just don't want to pay $2.5 million to, maybe Alberto doesn't make that team anymore. If Jose Iglesias is a guy who plays out of his mind again the first half of the season, maybe Jose Iglesias is traded at some point in the trade deadline. And then at third base, maybe Rio Ruiz just doesn't show you the flashes that you wanted to see out of Rio Ruiz. So if you're the Orioles, you could be looking at that infield and say, okay, maybe we need three different guys at those infield spots. There's a possibility at the end of 2021, maybe you have Caden Grenier starting at second base. Maybe you have Taron Vavra at short and Ryland Bannon at third. Yeah, I think that is entirely possible for the end of 2021 if you don't like the value that you're getting out of second and third, and maybe Jose Iglesias is just too good to not trade. So I think it could. it is entirely possible that we could see a completely different Orioles infield at the end of the year than that we're getting at the beginning of the year. And we're getting questions, of course, because we are live on Facebook and YouTube. If you are not watching, we are a visual experience as well as an audio experience. Uh, Jammer Daniels asking, why can't Richie Martin play second base? He can. He didn't play any games really at second base in 2019, but in the minor league level in 2018 in the A's organization, he had moved around the diamond and the Orioles have talked up his defensive versatility. So maybe that's a possibility by the end of the 2021 season. And it could be at the beginning of the 2021 season. If they decide to move on from Hanser Alberto uh, and trade him, maybe Richie Martin is starting on opening day at second base. I think that's a possibility. But like you said, at the end of the year, I think it's probably likely if I had to put money on it I think Ryland Bannon is probably your starting third baseman by the end of next season I think that he is right there he played at Norfolk uh, two years ago in 2019 now Uh, he didn't get any playing time obviously at the big league level this year but he was at the alternate site near the end of the time there he has defensive versatility so he could play third he could play second probably at this point more of a third baseman Um, And I think they want to see what they have in him. He's a top 30 prospect, a guy that they got in the Manny Machado trade. And I think by the end of the year, I think he will get his call up and we probably will see him play um, at at third base. And then I think Jose Iglesias, I think that prop, that spot is probably going to be filled. um, I would think at this point by Richie Martin, you mentioned Taron Vavra, uh, Caden Grenier was who else did you mention as infield prospects? Those were the three that I thought could come up at the end of 21. It was Ryland Ban and Taron Vavra and maybe Caden Grenier. I, I'm not sure about Grenier, just because we didn't see a whole lot of him. And, of, of course, we're a year removed from actually seeing numbers on these guys, but he was at the high A level, didn't get to double A in 2019, um, and we didn't see enough like offensively production-wise from him. Not sure about him. And Vavra was also at the high A level. I think he could move up the organization quickly. Maybe there's a chance they bring him up in 2021. I think he's probably, at this point, a 2022 guy. But I think 2022 is when we start to see a lot of it. We might even see Vavra. We might see Gunnar Henderson. Um, who else might we? Uh, maybe a Jordan, Jordan Westberg. Westberg. Yeah. Um, all three of those guys can probably play shortstop too, which is exciting. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of those guys that you could probably slot into any infield position. I think, especially talk about Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg. They're both bigger guys that kind of profile as third basemen at the major league level. So we'll see how they progress through the minor league level if they are continuing to show good defense at shortstop or if maybe they need to move over to the hot corner. But I think there are a ton of possibilities for how the out, excuse me, the infield could shake up. There's a lot of possibilities for the outfield too. But I think for the infield, there are a lot of possibilities for how that could shake out. And there are a lot of good prospects that could come up and and see time at third base, see time at shortstop, see time at second base too. If the Orioles don't love their options at those positions right now. Yeah. A lot of things in flux when it comes to this infield. And of course the outfield is going to be probably the most exciting position group for this team going forward in, in 2021 with Santander and Hayes and Mullins Maybe use Neil Diaz making his debut in 2021. On the pitching side, Mike Elias the other day was asked about starting pitching because you have the guys in the rotation as it stands. You have John Means. You have Alex Cobb, who we've talked about as a trade candidate. Um, you have Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer. And, and Mike Elias didn't necessarily commit 
to those two guys being in the rotation next year. But I think given their 2020 performance, I think you have to immediately, you have to assume that they're going to be starting in 2021. Yeah, I would be very surprised if they weren't. Yeah. If, if Michael Elias wants to go out and sign some veterans, veteran starting pitching, that's great. But I think you would much rather get a guy like Keegan Aiken starts over a 38-year-old free agent that they're going to sign. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just, there's no point in not seeing what you have with the prospects who are coming up. And Keegan Aiken looked good last season. Yeah. And as did Dean Kramer. So personally, I think it would be crazy to not have those prospects in the starting rotation because that's the whole point, yeah. right? Like you don't, you don't want to have the prospects be ready for the major league level. And they send, then say, all right, we'll just throw them in the bullpen. Right. And, you know, and if they're starting pitching arms, start them. Yeah. And Bruce Zimmerman is slight is like not quite in that category just because he's not as highly touted of a prospect as Kramer and Aiken. And he did struggle. He only got what the two or three appearances um, but his first career start, he really did struggle, uh, and he just doesn't quite, I don't think, have a spot solidified in that rotation. I think that fifth starter spot, assuming they don't trade Cobb this offseason, so they have Means, Cobb, Aiken, and Kramer. Michael Elias did say he is looking to add potentially during this free agent period on the starter side, um, and we'll roll that clip right now of what he's looking for in free agent starters, um, and he, he sounded pretty uh, optimistic that they'll get a guy either on a major or minor league deal. No, I, I definitely think we'll be signing some, some starting pitchers. I mean, we, you can never have enough. Um, you see even, even last year, we, you know, we got the injury um, bug like, like every team does on, on a couple of our starters. So we're definitely going to need to sign um, some, some outsiders, whether it's a, a major or minor league deal will be, will be case by case in TBD. But um yeah, I think that uh, Dean and uh, Keegan's debuts um, went about as well as they, they should have gone. And um, we, we really liked uh, what we saw from them, just not results and stuff, but their uh, professional demeanors, the way they carry themselves. I mean, I think any of you guys that watched the games were, were impressed with those aspects as well. Um, knowing that, you know, there, there will be some additional competition next year in camp. Um, you know, this – Players have uh, rough sophomore years sometimes, so to speak. That's all to be expected. So I don't think we're going to, um, you know, lock anything in, in stone and, and we want to have that competition. But they've certainly more than put themselves on the map, not just for the 2021 rotation, but we're hoping for, you know, the next the next five years or, or and beyond that, that uh, these are guys that are part of a, uh, a playoff group here. So when Mike Elias says he's looking for a veteran starter, Brendan, I, I think we can immediately assume they're going to be big-time players for Trevor Bauer. I think so. When I, when I think a Tommy Malone type, my brain immediately goes to former Cy Young winner Corey yeah. Kluber. Somebody like that. Somebody of that echelon yeah. that the Orioles would bring in. You know, If not Corey Kluber or Trevor Bauer, you have to think they go after Charlie Morton. You, know? yeah. you, you just have to think that they go after these high caliber starting pitchers. But the the point is that they're going to bring in somebody for, you know, that fifth rotation spot who, in my opinion, probably isn't going to be there very long. Yeah. Considering you have a ton of these pitching prospects who you want to see what you have in them. Somebody like a Zach Lowther, Michael Bauman, all of these names that could come up in 2021 and you need to see what you have in them in the starting rotation. So I can't imagine that they're going to go out and sign somebody for a ton of money that is going to be guaranteed a starting rotation spot. So that's why I think they go after Chris Archer, you know, bring him in a one year, $1 million deal. I can't see why Chris Archer wouldn't take something like that. He, he was pretty bad in Pittsburgh. Uh, I mean, talk about a guy whose value has pretty much tanked in the past couple years. Yeah. Um, I think there are some candidates out there. I don't know. I, I mean, Chris Archer is still considered, I think he's still on some t that very, very end of a top 50 free agent list, which, by the way, this this free agent class is not one of the best classes we've it, seen it's, in a while. It is not earth-shattering. No, no, no. Um, but the Orioles, we talked about on previous podcasts, the Orioles will kind of look around the market. Um, and like you said, I think they're just kind of looking for a guy to fill in maybe as few as like, seven starts 
Like just yeah. to, honestly, just to get them through the first couple months of the season, because these guys, if if everything goes according to plan, um, and these guys are able to pitch in the minor leagues, knock on wood, those guys are going to be knocking on the door. Zach Lather, Alexander Wells, Michael Bauman, those three in particular are going to be knocking on the door. And maybe Bruce Zimmerman starts pitching really well. They maybe they send him down to Norfolk. He starts crushing it, and they need to give him a spot. So. They're really not asking for a whole lot, with the the caveat that if they do trade Alex or if they do trade Alex Cobb, that will open a spot, a definitive spot, I think, in the rotation. It's just whether they can actually make that move that I think Michael Elias would very much like to do this offseason. Yes, that definitive spot for Corey Kluber. Yes, of course, of course. Yes, Who, another guy whose value has tanked in the past couple of years. Yeah, but it, still Corey Kluber. But still Corey Kluber. No, not, exactly. Not only are those guys in the minor leagues knocking on the door. I think realistically you could start any one of them at the beginning of the 2021 season and they would probably do a good job Yeah, because they have shown pretty consistently at the minor league level that they are just about ready, if not ready to make their major league debuts. So I think even holding them off a few months is just that you're just holding them off. I think they are almost ready to be a consistent starter, hopefully at the major league level, or at the very least, they are ready to show you what they potentially have at the major league level. So even if Michael Elias doesn't go out and sign a number five starter, personally, I would be confident in calling up any one of those three guys, having them be the number five starter at this point. I don't think Michael Elias is going to want to do that. I think he probably wants to bring in a veteran, like you said, even if it is just for seven, eight starts somewhere around there. But personally, I'm ready for one of those three. I hope yeah. that time comes sooner rather than later. And a byproduct of the shutdown, we, I think we might have already seen one of those three guys at this point. If 2020 had been a normal season, I don't know which of yeah. the three it would have been. Maybe Michael Bauman, who, by the way, had that shoulder injury right at the end of the his time at the alternate camp, and uh, he is expected to be ready by spring training. So um, that probably won't change his outlook at all, but something to monitor. Um I think there's a chance we might have already seen one of those three guys because I think at least two of those three guys would have started 2020 at Norfolk, and then you're just a, a, a call away from having to come up and, and make a start. But in that 60-game season, I totally understand why they played it conservatively. Yeah, and we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago some guys that Michael Elias could bring in. I wouldn't be surprised if he went after somebody like a Michael Waka was a name that you brought up. I did. Somebody who is a just a veteran presence. They'll be able to make some starts here and there. If they pitch well, sure, you can keep them in the rotation and maybe look to deal them at the deadline or deal Alex Cobb or something like that. Yeah. But you want to bring in somebody who gives you enough flexibility to say, okay, you're not going to cost me a ton of money if we call up one of these prospects and all of a sudden you're no longer in the starting rotation. I'm not going to feel bad paying Corey Kluber $10 million only to have him get benched when a prospect comes up. You need somebody who is not going to cost you a lot so it doesn't hurt you when you inevitably are probably going to call those prospects up that are going to take their job in the starting rotation. Yeah, and either bump that veteran to the bullpen or try to trade that veteran at some point, which makes them more attractive as a trade piece if they have a lower salary as well, like we saw partly with Tommy Malone. Um, speaking of pitching, Brendan, uh, before we toss to the interview with Steve Klauke to talk about Isaac Matson, we should talk about the fact that Chris Holt is the Orioles' new pitching coach, um, at taken over for Doug Brocale. He already was the director of pitching, which means he was working at the alternate site for the most part this year. I've talked to a lot of prospects who immediately mention him when I ask about guys that they have worked with in the organization that have helped their development. He's only been with this club um, since Mike Elias joined in November a couple of years ago, but he has already made it a, a pretty strong impression on a lot of the young guys that are coming up through this system. And I think the best part about this is that he gets to continue that. He's All those names we have said numerous times, he has worked with personally, and he gets to continue that now by maintaining his role of director of pitching and now adding pitching coach at the major league level where all the minor leaguers he just worked with are going to be coming up to Baltimore and be working with him at the big league level. Yeah, it comes over from the Astros with Sigma Dell and Michael Elias, so obviously he's already familiar with them. And probably this doesn't change his role with the pitchers a whole lot because he was already working with them 
a lot at the alternate site, like you said. This just gives him a nicer title. And I think he's probably going to continue to do a lot of the same things that he was doing last year. And listen, whatever he was doing at the alternate site, he's got to keep doing it. Because the two pitchers that were called up for the Orioles last year that were the prominent prospects in Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer, they both showed flashes of being really good starting pitchers potentially. So hopefully whatever he was doing at the alternate site, last season he continues to do as as now he becomes the pitching coach for the O's yeah it sounds like a lot of responsibility on his plate honestly to maintain the director of pitching title and also be a pitching coach at the big league level Um, but they have a lot of faith in this guy Michael Elias obviously trusts him to be able to do it and we know that these coaching staffs are going to be pared down around baseball as we have already seen Um, and Darren Holmes moves from bullpen coach over to assistant pitching coach, uh, and now they just have to replace uh, Jose Flores over at third base, and they will have their coaching staff set for next season. Um, and that that is pretty much one of the the final things that they have to do before they go start getting into the the depths of the player personnel decisions. And Brendan, we know that winter meetings will not be a in person event this year, and I think that's probably that's a good thing for numerous reasons, but also probably good because. I don't know what we would have to talk about a whole lot there because I, it's it's not going to be like last year where you saw Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, and Garrett Cole sign contracts on those three days of winter meetings. It's probably going to be a pretty slow winter, and things aren't going to heat up, I think, until we get into the new year. I think winter meetings is pretty much just going to be follow Trevor Bauer on Twitter. Yeah, he's That's probably going to be going live every day. I, probably. I can, ex- I can expect that. Yeah, Trevor Bauer will just be vlogging and he will be keeping you updated with where he is thinking he wants to go in free agency, which according to his Twitter is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's pretty much going to be the most excitement we're going to get out of winter meetings. I don't know if it's going to be a very eventful free agency, but I think the Orioles will at least find one or two guys that are veterans that they they think that can come in, help the team a little bit, even if they aren't going to be big signings. I think they'll be maybe a number five starter, somebody who's going to help you in the bullpen or maybe a utility guy somewhere. I think those are probably the signings to look for if you're the Orioles at this point. Yeah, and especially watch over the next coming weeks. I think the deadline for non-tender is the to non-tender guys who are arbitration eligible, as I dropped my phone, is I think it is December 2nd. So we are going to get probably some answers on where these guys are going to be and and which guys might be non-tendered, which guys might be traded for arbitration eligible over the next month or so. But Brendan, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. And uh, as always, enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. So let's get into the interview that I teased earlier. Steve Klauke, who was the broadcaster for Isaac Matson's most recent team that was back in 2019, the Salt Lake Bees at the AAA level. Isaac Matson, of course, one of the, the pieces, the most major league ready piece of the Dylan Bundy trade that was made a year ago. Here's my interview. Now we're joined on the Masson All Access podcast by Steve Klauke, who is the broadcaster for the Salt Lake Bees, one of the most recent teams, minor league teams, for Isaac Matson, who entered the Orioles organization about a year ago. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on. My pleasure, Paul. So let's start with Isaac Matson's journey to your team because you only got him for five games, but that was because he was dominating at the double A level for most of the 2019 season. What did you know about Isaac before he got called up to the bees? Well, I knew that he was, uh, from what I was told anyway, he was a, you know, a bulldog kind of a guy, doesn't let much bother him out on the mound and was a guy that was really like to be in charge out there. He was a guy that, uh, uh, you know, the Angels, I think, were pretty high on for a 19th round draft pick. He had really come through the system quickly. So when he entered the Bees, he, he, right at the tail end of the season, he had a, five appearances with you guys, as mentioned, just over nine innings. What did you see from him in that small sample size? Well, first of all, it was his fastball. And talking to our uh, pitching coach that year, Pat Rice, it's not overpowering by any stretch of the imagination, 90 to 95 miles per hour, but an amazing spin rate from what he says. And his vertical movement was really the key. He says with that fastball and the vertical movement that uh, he can put on that fastball, he's one of those few guys that might be capable if the other stuff isn't working, he can still get by throwing nothing but fastballs. And the other stuff is still really a work in progress. But uh, I just think 
the way he commanded himself out there, especially 19 strikeouts in nine and two third innings. And, you know, he's facing guys who have gotten big league time. That's one of the special things about AAA. You really get your first true litmus test of what you can do because you're now facing guys who have been to the bigs. Uh, yeah, and especially getting called up midseason like that and, and still experiencing the success that he did. You mentioned those 19 strikeouts. Obviously, for a reliever, those strikeout numbers should be pretty high, but is that a really good sign and a good indicator that he could translate that success as he moves onwards and upwards? I, I think so. Uh, again, talking with Pat Rice, he doesn't know if maybe a, a closing role would be his future in the big leagues, even though he's 10 for 10 in save opportunities in his minor league career. But he, I think he'd be the perfect, uh, especially in this day and age of baseball, a setup guy in the sixth, seventh, or eighth inning. And the, the fastball, that blistering fastball that you mentioned that has, you know, a, a great spin rate, do you think that's part of the reason that they shifted him to the bullpen? He was a bullpen guy when you got him, but uh, at the lower levels of the minor league, do you think maybe that blow-him-away fastball was the, the pitch that kind of set him over the edge and, and pushed him into the bullpen? Yeah, I really think so. I mean, the Angels, when they drafted him, started him out in the bullpen. Then in 2018, they did experiment with him as a starter. He had 11 starts at the lower levels, and they went okay, but I think they realized with the kind of stuff that he has, and you know, in this day and age, too, at 92, 95 miles per hour, probably not going to, no matter what kind of spin rate you have, what kind of movement you have, you might have troubles the second time through the order. So uh, I think a relief situation, a setup guy in the 6th, 7th, and 8th is his future. If he had stayed in the organization, this is going to be a tough question to kind of look and extrapolate into the future. Uh, and if 2020 had been a normal season, do you think that he would have started the season with you guys? But do you think he would have made, gotten his call up uh, to the big league level at some point during 2020? No doubt. No doubt, Paul. If he was uh, successful at our level, he would definitely have gotten the uh, opportunity. One thing about the Angels organization the last few years, they give guys opportunities. I know because of all the movement, we've set franchise records last season that we played, 2019, I believe. We had 264 transactions between uh, the Angels and uh, our ball club and and Double A. So he definitely would have gotten the opportunity to, to test the waters. And in terms of his personality, I interviewed him about a year ago when he entered the Orioles organization. It was over Zoom, so I couldn't get a great sense, but it seemed like he was a very smart guy, uh, a good guy, and a hardworking guy. Is that the sense that you got from him in the short time he was with the Bees? Absolutely, Paul. I I talked to a couple of his uh, Bees teammates who had been with him down at the the lower levels, and uh, they all had high praise of the kind of makeup that that, that Isaac has. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I always talk about, uh, you know, Mike Trout having that sixth tool between his ears. And I think Isaac may be one of those guys that has that tool between his ears that he's very smart in the way he approaches the game. That's great to hear. And hopefully Orioles fans will get a look at him at some point in the near future, maybe an invite to spring training, and maybe they'll see him in some games up in Baltimore in 2021. But in the meantime, Steve, thanks so much for hopping on the Mass and All Access podcast and sharing your insight. My, my pre- Anytime, Paul.